0: Turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Before we do that, let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we pray that you would humble our hearts before you now. As we come to your word, we pray that you would impress upon us the holiness of what we are doing here together, the holiness of your word, your own holiness, that we might submit to you humbly. Draw near to you. Receive your grace. Nourish us by your word, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. When something goes wrong, you should never underestimate a person's ability to blame someone else, right? We know this from all different sorts of experience, from politics, from politicians who play the blame game, from the corporate world, those who the company collapses and there's no one to blame. It's no one's fault. And even in our own families, we are so quick to lay the blame on the shoulders of someone else when something goes wrong. How often, I can't even tell you the amount of times, I've blamed someone in my family for misplacing something and come to find out it's my fault. I did it. But I'm so prone to to lay the blame at someone else's feet. And we all are. And it seems in James, James's readers are quick to lay the blame on someone else for their division, for their disunity, for the disorder that is going on in the churches. And yet, in our text, James lays the blame directly upon their own selfish desires. When it comes to things that go wrong in our lives, so often broken relationships, brokenness, unnecessary and sinful conflict, so often, this is the source of our problems, our own sinful desires. Look with me at James chapter four verses 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God. And he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Our theme for this morning is this. Since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we must humbly repent of our selfish desires and our spiritual adultery. Since God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, we must humbly repent of our sinfulness. Really, the whole Christian life is about repentance and faith. You don't simply repent one time and trust in Christ one time, and then you're done for the rest of your life repenting and trusting in Christ. Rather, your first turn of repentance and faith in Christ, that pivotal moment, that sets the pattern for every day for the rest of your life, of humbly repenting of your sin and coming again to Christ. There was a term used in the 17th century which speaks to this need of an ongoing reorientation of our lives back to Christ and His Word. It's the term semper reformanda. It means always being reformed. Always being reformed according to the word of God. So as Michael Horton says, it means that we are always in need of being reoriented to the word that stands over us individually and collectively and that the church can never stand still. We must always be reorienting our lives to Christ and his word. Allowing him to shape us, to mold us to grind a- away the rough edges. But we, we may not be aware of what repentance is in the first place, or we may not know what it is that we need to repent of. And for this, James gives us help. So in order to repent, I want us to see these four truths that we must understand. In order to re- repent, we must understand these four truths from James. We must understand, one, what sinful desires do, what sinful desires are, what God provides for our sinfulness, and what response God, God's grace calls for. So as, as we walk through this passage together, let us be careful to listen with hearts of faith that our minds, that our lives, that our thoughts, or our inward attitudes might be reformed according to the word of God. So first, let's notice what sinful desires do. What sinful desires do. Sinful desires cause strife. These sinful passions cause strife. And the reason they cause strife is because others become obstacles to getting what we want, or they become tools to get what we want. So remember the context, James is concerned with unity and he's concerned particularly with how ungodly wisdom affects that unity, how it destroys that unity. The way we use our speech either builds up or tears down. Envy and selfish ambition causes disorder and every evil thing. And now in chapter 4, James is continuing with this theme of ungodly wisdom. And the effects ungodly wisdom has on our relationships within the church. And I want you to notice two effects. This is what sinful desires do. They have an effect on our relationship with others. And they have an effect on our relationship with God. So James says that sinful desires or passions are the source of the fights and the quarrels they were having within the community of believers. So we're uncertain if... They were literally coming to blows. Were they literally killing one another and, and having physical fights, brawls? We're not sure if this is kind of a literal killing or if it's a figurative killing. But the point here is that there were sharp divisions because of these sinful desires. There were sharp divisions within the body of Christ. And they came from selfish desires. They wanted something and they couldn't get it. And so it caused them to be angry and treat one another harshly. See, what happened is they began to see each other as obstacles to getting what they wanted. And whenever we begin to see others as obstacles to get what we want, we can be sure that our sinful and selfish desires have taken control over some aspect of our lives. Sinful desires are the source of our strife with one another. But that's not all. Our sinful desires also cause strife with God. Notice James says in verse 2, You do not have because you do not ask. So it's a, a prayer problem. He's already written to them before, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give generously to all without reproach. You must ask in faith, and it will be given to him. God is the good giver, the source of every good and perfect gift. So ask him, James says, you do not have because you do not ask. And he anticipates a response. Well, we have asked and we haven't gotten anything. We haven't got what we've asked for. And so James says, when you ask, you ask with wrong motives. You're asking that you might spend it on your own selfish desires. This is not what prayer is. Prayer is not using God as a tool to fulfill some other greater desire for something other than God. They saw others as obstacles to getting what they want, and they began to see God as a tool for getting what they wanted. And this too is a sign that our sinful desires are going unchecked. When we begin to treat God as a tool for getting what we really want, when all along, God is what we really need. This is what sinful desires do. They call strife. They cause us to see others And God as either obstacles to getting what we want or tools for the greater purpose of getting something we think will bring us satisfaction. Getting something we think we need which will give us happiness. But what we find is that the pleasures of sin are short-lived. And they end in guilt, shame, broken relationships. Sinful desires can never deliver on the promises they make. So what about you? Can you see this in your own life? Think about your relationships. Think about your prayer life. Think about your prayer life and are you treating your prayer life as, treating God as a a tool in your prayer life? Maybe he could give you something greater than yourself that will give you true joy and satisfaction. According to these tests, are you allowing your sinful desires to have the upper hand in your own life? Do you see others as obstacles to getting what you want? And that's what causes strife and division in your relationships. This is what sinful desires do. But James wants us to see more. He wants us to see not only what the effect of these sinful desires are. He wants us to see the reality of what they are. Their true identity. So what are they? What are sinful desires. Sinful desires are spiritual adultery against God and friendship with the world. So this is really a shocking change in tone for James here. You adulterous people! He's speaking to, uh, throughout the letter, believers and unbelievers. He calls them adulterous. This shocking change in tone, he calls them out. James, that's name-calling, and you shouldn't really do that, right? And yet he stands in a long line of prophets who called the people of God back to repentance and called them adulterers. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 54, 5 and 6, compares the relationship between God and His people to a marriage relationship For your maker is your husband. The Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And the prophet Jeremiah speaks about this spiritual adultery of the people of God. Like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me. And in what is perhaps the most shocking example of all, We have the book of Hosea, in which we read, When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, God, uh, Hosea, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Don't you know, James says, that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So if you want to be a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. Now, in order to understand this language, we need to understand what friendship was in this, uh, in this culture in which it was written. Because it's different than oftentimes how we use it today. I can be friends with someone on Facebook having never even met them. We tend to use the term friendship and friends in kind of a light manner. It doesn't mean that much to us. We, we mainly mean an acquaintance. And yet, in the Hellenistic world, friendship involves sharing all things in unity, both physical and spiritual, with someone. It involves an intimacy and a a unity with one another, a partnership. What James is saying is what Jesus has said before him. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on this earth but store up your treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And he says, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money. Verse 5 is said to be one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture to translate and interpret. I'll save you the details of what the difficulties are, but if you even just look through different translations, you'll see uh, how they treat it different ways. But I think the main point, here's my paraphrase of verse 5. The scripture teaches us that God is jealous for the undivided allegiance of his people. The scripture teaches us that God is jealous for the undivided allegiance of his people. He will have no other rivals. He will accept no half-heartedness or double-mindedness. He calls for you to surrender all. Like a man is passionate that his wife loves him alone, so our Lord is passionate that we would give glory and devotion to none other. But while man is often driven by fear or insecurity or hatred, God is driven by his love for his bride. The reason he is jealous for his people is because he knows that nothing else in all the world will give them what they need. He and he alone is the ultimate good. And in some ways, we apply this in the same way we did our first point. We examine to see if there are sinful desires, which are evidences of a divided heart within us. But here it's important to see more than that. It's important to see if we understand our sin for what it really is. Spiritual adultery. Your sin is spiritual adultery against God. And so, like last week, when James uses this language of ungodly wisdom being demonic, he wants us to see the reality of our sin against God, of our sinful hearts, for sinful thoughts and our actions against God. Our sin is spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world. It's turning our backs on the God who bought us. It's a re- rejection of the one who is our only hope and joy and salvation. Now, we think of physical adultery as terrible sin, and it is. Right, It breaks the union of a man and a woman. It's the turning of one's back on the other partner in the marriage. It is ugly. It is evil. It is wicked. But if that's true, how much more evil and ugly and wicked is it? when we commit spiritual adultery against the God who made us? How much more wicked is it when we find our joy in something other than God, when we seek the things of the world, when only God can fulfill what we need? Our sinful desires call strife, and they are nothing less than spiritual adultery and friendship with the world. We have made ourselves Enemies with God by our sin, and every one of us by our sin deserves God's wrath. But notice what God provides for our sinfulness. This is our third truth. What God provides for our sinfulness, grace. Though by our spiritual adultery we have made ourselves enemies with God, he gives us more grace. The reality of our indwelling sin reminds us of our ongoing need for grace, grace, and more grace. And that's what God gives. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved love, gifts when punishment is what we deserve. So in uh, Romans 7, we get an unfiltered glimpse at Paul's own struggle with indwelling sin. He wants to serve God, but he finds himself falling into the same old sin patterns time after time. He knows the good he ought to do. But time time, time and time again, he can't bring himself to do it. And this is the experience of the Christian. Now we might wonder why this is. Why would God allow us to go through this struggle over and over and over again? Why would God allow us to continue struggling with anger towards one another and division against one another? Could He not change it if He so desired? Now, I do hold out that the gospel not only saves us, but it also changes us. It does change us. The old is gone and the new has come. We are new creatures in Christ. But I do wonder sometimes why it, why it seems we don't progress by leaps and bounds in the Christian life. Why do we continue to struggle? Why do we take two steps forward and one step back? Why do we take one step forward and two steps back sometimes? I think Ian Duguid helps us with this quote. He says, It is God's plan for us that we should walk through this world in great weakness physical and spiritual, so that we might never forget our desperate need for the one who walked this path perfectly in our place. His primary goal is not our perfect obedience and success, which might allow us to claim some of the glory for ourselves, but his primary goal is Christ's glory, which becomes all the more visible through our great weakness and ongoing struggles with indwelling sin. Now, this is not an excuse for us to sin, brothers and sisters. As if we ought to sin more so that we'll get more grace, right? Paul rejects that notion. He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we continue to live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... Through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. But it reminds us, this reality of indwelling sin, this reality of the ongoing struggle in the Christian life, reminds us of our absolute dependence upon the grace of God. We need more grace. And Paul's response to his own struggle with indwelling sin? O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on in Romans 8 to say, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and that the Spirit then causes us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. But we are in need of much grace. We are dependent. You are dependent upon the grace of God as much now as you were when you first believed. So God gives us more grace, but not everyone receives this grace. For as James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This brings us to our fourth truth. The response that God's grace calls for is humble repentance. This is how you receive God's grace, humble repentance. What God's response calls for, what's God's, what God's grace calls for is repentance. Since God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, we must respond in humble repentance. So look in verse 7. James gives a summary of, Here, and also at at verse 10, he gives a summary of what he is calling his readers to do, which is repent. Submit yourselves then to God. And then in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And this is what characterizes repentance. Humility, submission, submitting yourself to God, humbling yourself before the Lord. There's no other way to receive God's grace than with a humble heart and open hands desperate to be filled. You can say all the right words in accordance with repentance and yet not repent. In fact, you can say them in a way that sounds meaningful and genuine and yet still be holding out in pride in your own heart. Just look how children apologize to one another. I'm sorry. Right? We can hide it a little better than that, right? But there are times when we can apologize and yet really not be humble and contrite in our own hearts. And it's not only possible, it's not only that we can do it, we often do it. I'm certain that all of our repentance is tainted in some way with our own selfishness and pride. But notice... How else James characterizes this humble repentance for spiritual adultery. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. So repentance is saying no to the lies of the devil and saying yes to the promises of God. It's rejecting and resisting the schemes of the devil and opening up your heart to God. James continues, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. His his reference to hands and heart reminds us that repentance includes both deeds of repentance and a disposition of repentance. It's both actions and attitude of repentance. As commentator Douglas Moose says, James sees his readers as both Christian and in need of a wake-up call that will bring home to them the seriousness of their departure from godly attitudes and behaviors. Grieve, mourn, and wail, James says. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. His readers were happy in their selfishness and in their sin. Instead, they ought to be repentant. And this would include a visible response of sorrow. So you can't read someone's, uh, someone's inner attitude from their outward expression. But sometimes you can. And sometimes there ought to be a visible expression of one's sorrow for their sin. Paul was glad when he saw the godly sorrow. He saw the actions of the Corinthians. He notes their eagerness, their indignation against their sin. Their alarm at their sin, it affected them greatly. Their longing and concern and readiness to see justice done. And Jesus himself says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We are to mourn over our sins. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Now you'll hear this. You'll hear James's call to to repent like this and you will respond in probably one of two ways. If you're a certain type of person, you'll hear this and think, yes, I can do this. I'm going to really get serious now about my walk with the Lord. I'm going to really humble myself. This Here's your New Year's resolution. I will submit like never before. I will humble myself like never before and I will do this. I will mourn over my sin. I will clean my hands. I will purify my heart before the Lord and I will be wholeheartedly devoted to God. And if this is you, then when you fail, remember the grace of God. I'm not encouraging you to fail. Your zeal is good. I'm saying when you find that you can't live up to your resolution to do better, to humble yourself more, to submit to God more, to surrender all, humbly fall back into the gracious arms of God who will catch you every time. But you might respond in a different way. You might hear this call to repentance and think, I want to do that. I yearn to do that. I want to repent like that. But it seems like every time I try, I just end up failing. After all, I I commit some sins, some of the same sins I committed 20 years ago. What is wrong with me? Why can't I repent like I know that I should? And not only that, I find I'm not as sorry over my sin as I should be. What is wrong with me? I find I'm not as submitted to God as I should be. I'm not as humble as I should be. And if this is you, be comforted. Because this is what humility looks like. Humility recognizes its own need, its own dependency, its own inadequacy. And it cries out with Paul, Oh, wretched person that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And the answer will come if you know your Bibles. The answer will come if you know the Gospel. For as the early church father Augustine said, God provides what He demands. God has demanded absolute, single-minded devotion from His people. And He has provided this undivided allegiance in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Was he not the one who submitted himself perfectly to God? Was he not the one who resisted the devil and made him flee? Or what about clean hands and a pure heart? Turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament, Psalm 24. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek your face, God of Jacob. Lift up your head. And there is no man on earth who has clean hands and a pure heart. None. No one on earth who has not trusted in an idol or sworn by a false god, but there is one who has ascended up to the right hand of the Father Almighty, whose hands were clean and whose heart was pure. But his hands, clean as they were, became stained with blood for sinners. And His pure heart moved Him to give up His life for adulterers. Jesus is the King of glory who has ascended to the mountain of the Lord who stands in the presence of the Holy One and He died for our sins that we might come near to God. The only way your hands can be washed is by the blood of Jesus spilled for you. The only way your heart can be purified is by the One who took on your sins becoming impure himself, taking on your impurities and receiving the punishment from God that was reserved for you. The call for unbeliever and believer alike this morning is to come before the Lord in humble repentance and faith in Jesus Christ to rescue you. Or in the words of Augustus Toplady, Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath when my eyes shall close in death when I soar to worlds unknown see thee on thy judgment throne rock of ages cleft for me let me hide myself in thee. Let's pray together. Father we have nothing to bring. We have nothing of worth to offer you. We simply come humbly Because we need your grace. And so we do pray that you would cause us to come to a genuine repentance. A humble repentance. A humble submission to your word and to your will. Reform us by your word. We pray. In Christ's name. Amen.